I was, I don't know, five, 10 seconds from being dead. And eventually I thought about my three kids and I said, no, I can't leave them without that. And that's how I find the energy, the last energy to manage to find a solution to jump out of the car. Welcome to this exclusive series here on my Beyond Victory podcast. And my guest is Romain Grosjean. And we spoke about his way into Formula One, his toughest moments, his best experiences, comparing his teammates Alonso and Kimi Raikkonen. Then, of course, also all the way to going through his very, very severe crash with the fire, his mental challenges through that. And now his next step in his career as well, going into Indy cars and the challenges of jumping back in the race car for the first time. So, Please enjoy. I think it's going to be very interesting and inspirational. Here we go. Hi, Romain. Thank you so much for taking the time for a chat. Where are we finding you? Hey, hey. I am, you know, I'm good. I'm, I'm back in Switzerland where I, uh, I live with the family for some time. And uh, between all the travel in the US, I like to be home and, uh, and quiet. So there's going to be quite a few back and forth this year. How many flights have you scheduled so far? Uh, I mean, they change every day with, with COVID. You know, you, you book one in the next hour, it's cancelled. So you need to go to the next one. And it's a bit of a challenge, but I mean, you know, it, it's good fun. And I guess I'll be quite used to jet lag at the end of the year. <laughs> so you know that I worked with a Harvard sleep trainer on jet lag during my championship year. And uh, I don't know if you've looked into something like that, but the secret was to do small steps, especially if you're going like for a longer period. So you start at home one and a half hours per day. And then when you get there, you continue doing one and a half hours per day. This way you don't have any jet lag at all. I don't know, maybe you can uh, try something like that as well. Yeah, I, I did try when, when I was in Formula One and it actually works quite well when you go to Asia with the kids because you go to bed earlier and earlier. You know, you end up going to bed at seven and waking up at like five or four. But going to the US with the kids is impossible because then I end up going to bed at 1 a.m. and the kids at 6.30, they wake me up and I say, Daddy, let's go play. <laughs> so I've given up. <laughs> so most of the time you're taking the family over there as well? Or so, I mean, no, sometimes, no, huh? they, no they, they stay here. And uh, oh, okay. this, this summer we will go there. I think we, uh, we'll have a big RV and we're going to go and, and drive around the country and discover something new. That sounds awesome. That's a, a nice new uh, step of life, no? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very different. Uh, I found the atmosphere there absolutely amazing. Such a, a warm welcome and uh, back to basics and, and racing and that feels good. That's cool. That's nice to hear. I want to jump to the beginning of your career. Like where was the, where did the dream start for you to like be F1 driver, fighting for big things? Where, did, where was the beginning of the dream? It was always my dad, you know, he was, he was always passionate about racing cars and he started competing himself when he was about 40. So I was what, eight years old and coming with him on the races and seeing the cars. And uh, then he bought himself a go-kart to practice, to do some uh, Formula 3 in the Swiss championship. And he bought me one and I jumped in the go-kart. And then every Wednesday afternoon, every Saturday morning, I was at the track and eventually asked to go racing. And uh, that's how it all went. And did you like, did you ever believe like, yes, I can do this. I can be a Formula One driver or did it like evolve? Like, what was your thinking? I know. In all fairness, I had no idea I could make it until I was in Formula Two. Just because, you know, you go kart with so many other races, you know, and then you go through the categories and then there's only 20 seats at the top of the, of the ladder in Formula One. So, you know, it's, it's a very steep pyramid. And eventually when I, when I made it to GP2 at the time, 
uh, and I started winning races, I thought, oh, you know what, maybe I can, maybe I can make it. But beforehand, it was just going racing and having fun. And so in, in GP2, you actually thought, yes, I can do this. I can become a Formula 1 driver. Yeah, in GP2, uh, I, I thought, you know, if I can win the category just under Formula 1 and compete with the, the top guys here, then I think I have a chance. So that's already more confidence than I ever had. I was never, even in the last step, I was, I was not convinced that I could race the likes of Schumacher's, Montoya's, you know, who were racing in my time. I don't know. I never had that big self-confidence. Anyway, so then you won Formula 3, GP2. But before winning GP2, of course, you were Renault test driver 2009. And suddenly, out of the blue, you get called up to get to jump into the race seat like with not so much practice and right in against the toughest opponent in the world at the time, which was Fernando Alonso in his absolute prime. Can you take us through a little bit how that, like that moment was of finding out, okay, I'm actually going to get the race seat next to Alonso now and I'm not really prepared. And like, was it just exciting or was it like, oh shit, I don't know if I'm going to manage to do this so well or what was the feelings? I think it was just excitement because if I give you the background, so yes, I was a Honor test driver uh, for a long time. Even though the R29, I think, was named on 2009, I never drove it until I got to Valencia, free practice one. Never even, you know, I, I made my seat and that was it. There were no simulator at the time, so I didn't practice anything. And I was leading the GP2. And then I got the phone call after Germany. You are in the car in Hungary next week. So I'm all excited, ready for it. You know, it was, it was Pat Simons calling me. And then uh, the next day, I got a phone call. No, phone call. No, actually, Nelson has got the last chance. He will do Hungary. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'm back to GP2. So, you know, uh, I mean, it was great to be, GP2 is amazing. But when you have the call that you're going to be in the car, in the Formula One, and then they call you back and say, no, you're not. It was a bit of a disappointment. And then eventually they get the call again before the summer break or during the summer break. Okay, in Valencia, you're in the car. It is seven Grand Prix to practice, to warm up, no pressure, no need of results. The car is anywhere not good. Just take it as a, as a learning curve. And 2010, you're in the car with a you know, much better situation. So for me, there were no real pressure in that way that it was seven Grand Prix to learn what Formula One is. And well, it didn't turn out to be that way. <laughs> I'm surprised that you say there's no pressure because for a young driver, you only have a handful of moments to impress. And to tell everybody, okay, you deserve to be there. So I'm surprised that you were able to still keep it so lighthearted in a way. So that's a good mindset, I think. Yeah, I think, and you know, obviously, because you're told it's like practice because you never raised the car, obviously going to the grid, there were pressure. And, you know, when it's your first Grand Prix, you want to do well and so on. But if you take the whole picture, it was like, yeah, you know, it's a practice for you. We don't expect anything from you. Uh, we don't, you know, no, no pressure was the word. And then the crash gate story appeared. I was, I was managed by Flavio at the time. And, you know, when, when everything was happening, they cleared the whole house and I was cleared with the furniture. Yeah. You, that the crash gate cost me the win, by the way, in Singapore at the time. <laughs> so that was, uh, I also have a connection to that. Um, you were racing Alonso then in those seven races. He was in his super prime. He's one of the best of all time. Do you remember any like moments where you're like, oh my God, what, what is this guy doing? Like, do you remember some crazy, insane moments? One, one in, in Suzuka and qualifying. I was, the whole weekend, I was, I was faster than him in free practice and comes qualifying the first set of tires. I'm faster than him. And then the second set of tires, he kills me. And I'm like, damn, you know, what happened here? 
and I, I go on and open the data and I remember spoon corner, you know, we, we used to, I don't know, we used to break a little bit for the first part, then lift off the brake and then break it. I mean, the first part, he went in so fast, like instantly fast. It wasn't the same corner. And I'm like, who the hell did he pull that off? I mean, he killed me like three tenths in one corner. That was it. You know, I was three tenths behind. How did that happen? And what did you put it down to in the end? You think he was just building up to it or it's just those special abilities with experience in the moments when it counts? I think that's it. it you know, having the confidence, the experience and trying something a bit, you know, crazy with a car that was anywhere the slowest, but trying to go for it and find out something that was not written in the book. And <laughs> I actually learned from that, you know, and tried in the future as well to pull some outstanding performance sometime where you just feel confident in the lap and you say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try it. I had my own experiences like that because I had Schumacher and Hamilton as my teammate. So, so you could imagine that I had the occasional moment like that as well along the way where it's just like, it's the same car and it's like, how the hell can they even physically, humanly do something like that in that moment? It's sometimes it's really big head scratching. Uh, I'm sure they thought the same about you some other time or about me. You know, where you, where you <laughs> Maybe, <something> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. So then 2012, you, you get the call up to come back into Formula One, which of course was a really cool breakthrough for you to be in F1 two years out, then come back again. That was a big step with Kimi this time, but it started off to be a really tough one for you. I think the car was quite good, but you were crashing a lot. Is that right? That was the, was that 2012? No, that, that's the perception from outside. But actually, if you look at the races and so on, it's, it's not, it's not right. Surprisingly, I was my third race. I was on the podium. You know, for a rookie, that wasn't bad. I was third on the grid in Australia. And then Pastor kind of pushed me off in the race. In Malaysia, it was raining. It was my mistake. I spun. Uh, I wanted too much. And then I was on the podium in Canada. I finished second. I was leading the European Grand Prix in Valencia when the alternator failed. In Monaco, I was fourth on the grid. And, and Michael tried to overtake me through the left going on the starting grid. And that's never going to work because the guardrail had come back to the right and we touched. And there were a few touches and I don't know why the reputation started there. And then there was Spa-Francorchamps where I collided with Lewis. Obviously in that race, I could have done much better. But if we look at the footages, Lewis could have also, you know, give me a little bit more room or back up from the situation as he did in 2000, when was it? 2018 Mexico with Sebastian Vettel at the start. Well, you know, he backed off. So there were that stickers put on my on my head with crashes. But actually, if we look at all the incidents and the races and so on, there weren't that many. Man, you're a memory machine. Like, what, what's up with that? Can you, can you remember uh, every single race or what? I, I've got an elephant memory for some of the, the stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, especially when... But I anyways, even if you're... Even if you're saying, no, it's not really the truth, but still the sticker was put on your head that you're a Mr. Mr. Crashing all the time. Wasn't that tough from you? This external opinion that was building up and the pressure from outside, wasn't that a tough moment in your career? Yeah, that was, that was probably one of the toughest, you know, uh, just because you've got that sticker put you on, on your head. Uh, you've already came to Formula One once, came back, tried to do the best you can, did a pretty good season, you know, I was three, four podiums in my first year in Formula One. And then you've got that sticker and then you need to drive under your level just to avoid anything else and then come back in 2013. And same thing, initially, I, I had to be very careful and, and make sure that I would clean that sticker from my head. And that is tough work. Wasn't that the moment also where you started to work with a psychologist? Yes, correct. That was by 2012, just so I could, you know, 
I could understand what was happening. And as I say, I've, I've made mistakes. I'm not saying I didn't make any mistakes, but uh, also I think the sticker was, was probably not quite accurate as such. Uh, but yes, I went through that and, and learned a lot, you know. And I think what I wanted is to win the race absolutely to the, you know, from the first corner to, to the last one. Because, you know, in Formula One, that's, you know, if, if you're first at the first corner, life is much easier than if you are at the back. Of course. And who convinced you to take a psychologist? It just came from yourself or was it the team or? No, it came, it came from myself. And I met my psychologist once. I met her through uh, an institute in Paris and we only chatted like five minutes. But I, I knew her and then uh, I think that was in June or something like that. And then in September after spa, I found her and I said, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to try to see what I can find June to make sure that I, I take the right decision again in spa. I wasn't, it wasn't 100% me and 0% the other, but uh, it was mainly me. And I say, okay, what can I do better to avoid that situation? So we have that in common, because huh? I was working with a psychologist in 2007. So I worked very, very intensely throughout almost my entire career. Every two days, we did two-hour sessions, um, which was, it was tougher than all the physical training. It was like absolutely extreme. So we have that in common. But the difference was that you actually spoke about it, which I think is very courageous, because in our world... In F1, you're a bit of a loser if you have a, a brain doctor helping you, you know, a psychologist. So that sucks a bit, but you were courageous enough always to talk about it, which, which I respect a lot. And what was your biggest progress that you found in your work with the psychologist? Like the biggest eye-opening moment or, or where you can really see, okay, that definitely um, had a positive change in my life as a result of that work. You know, I think you, every time, every year there are some. It's crazy. We can always progress. I know the brain works, you know. Obviously, I went through some tough moments in my career, uh, not mentioning the, the 29th of November 2020, but also I became a father, a husband, and that changed your life in, in many ways. And, you know, sometimes you just you just need to adapt to, to different situations. For me, 2013, I was doing a, a, an amazing season and without any curse issue early in the year, I think I could have become probably vice world champion. And, uh, and then 2014, my car was a piece of, rubber. And, uh, you know, I was, we were the slowest and you are ready to win races. You, you've done all your work and then suddenly the tool you have in between your hand is just not good. And that is tough. And then you work on that. And also I remember when I was leading the race in 2013 in Suzuka, it was about the first time I was properly leading the race from lap one. And I was thinking, don't crash, don't crash. Cause oh, you know, all the TVs are watching you. So don't put it in, in the gravel. And after that, I spoke to the psychologist. I said, this is, you know, this is brand new. I've never experienced leading a Formula One race as such. So we worked around that. So you work around the good moments, but also around the tough ones. And what was one of those toughest moments? Like you explained that now, like being scared that you're going to crash. That obviously isn't very beneficial to performing well, uh, those kind of thoughts. But is there any very dark, other dark moments where you say like, oh, damn, I was sitting at home and I started to think that maybe I'm just not good enough for being a Formula One uh, driver? Or is there any like really, really dark moments that you had in that time? No, I, I never really thought I wasn't good enough to be in Formula One. But there were some dark moments where you think, why did I do that? You know, why? Like to me, two in my career that I'm really not proud of is Japan 2012, when I crashed to the start with Mark Webber, and that was 100% my fault. I didn't even see him. I was so focused on trying to overtake the other car that I didn't even see him. And then uh, Barcelona 2018, when I spun in turn three and, and I wanted to, to swipe the car back on track and, and went on throttle instead of jumping on the brake and you know, giving up the position. 
But 2012, like with Mark Weber, that was after a string of other incidents already, which other people saw mostly as your as your fault. And and how did you then work through that with your psychologist? This self doubt that came, like why did I? Why am I making such mistakes? Why why can't I do better than that? How did you how did you overcome that? Well, we you know we worked through all the steps and and why is is this happening? Why why didn't I, in Japan? Why didn't I didn't even see it? I didn't. I was so focused on. I think it was a Sauber on my left. It was Kamui Kobayashi. Why was I so focused on not losing the position? And and why didn't I accept to lose the position at the time, even if I could get him back? And and then obviously trying to survive the criticism from other drivers. You know, the journalists that's their job to critics. Critics us. You know, they do all the time anyway. So we're used to it. But when it comes from the other drivers, then it's a bit more complicated and it hurts more. So then I had to drive. You know, until Korea 2013, every first lap I was driving under my capacity, under my capability, just because I wanted to avoid. And I remember before Korea, I had a chat with my psychologist and she says, no, you can go, you can be, you can be engaged in lap one. I say, are you crazy? I say, you know what I went through? So yeah, but I think you're ready now. I think you can, you know, you can do it. And if you watch on YouTube, that first lap in Korea, 2013, I had a big fight with Lewis and uh, came out on top of it with, uh, you know, and I was back to where I like to be. So that's cool. So with a psychologist, you just positioned yourself different on the risk management and just decided to consciously take a little bit less risks at all time to build back up to it. That was really the, the key out of it or what? Yeah, if we want to simplify it, and yes, he was trying to, to back off for some time, making sure that, you know, the, the confidence would come back normally. Yeah. And then eventually when, when we were ready, just go for it. That sounds cool. That sounds like really smart, uh, a smart approach, which not so many other drivers, I think, would have done in in that way. So that sounds great. Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was great. And I'm still, you know, I haven't stopped working with her. Obviously, after the crash in Bahrain, there were also some, you know, some different work that we needed to do, just because you can't, you can't be so close from death without working on it. You know, if I hadn't working on it, I would have had nightmares, I would have, I don't even think if I could have jumped back in a racing car, but we worked through that and through the process and through everything. So, you know, I think you always become stronger and stronger. And, you know, you, we, I mean, you and me, we know how to prepare physically for racing cars. You know, we've done it for 20 years, but we still use a trainer, right? So the brain is the same thing to me. Why don't we use someone to train our brain, even though we know you know, and it's more complicated than just doing biceps curls or pull-ups or bench press, to be fair. No, it's not necessarily. I think it's it's a very similar approach. To to get the training right in the most efficient way is also very complicated. And and to progress mentally is it's similar. And I can only encourage everybody who's watching or listening, really take some time in your life to educate yourself also about the mental side. Learn there's so much valuable information out there, which is so powerful for our lives. I can really recommend it. It also had such a big impact on my life. So we really, um, we really share that. If it's okay, I would like to touch on the tough crash, of course, a bit later. Just coming back again, you were racing Kimi, of course, in 2012, 2013. Quick comparison, Kimi Alonso, any ideas who you'd say uh, you would put as the faster guy? Uh, I think the faster would be, would be Alonso over one lap. Over a race distance, Kimi always would find a solution to go fast. Whatever would happen, he would always go fast in a race. <laughs> and, and you sometimes didn't really know how he was doing it or what? No, exactly. Uh, you know, he would, he, would just, he would just drive and say, no, nah, the car was okay. And you're like, no, the car was not okay. It was, you know, understeering, <laughs> oversteering, whatever. Nah, it was okay. 
What was, do you remember any really funny moment with Kimi? Well, you know, we were teammates for two years and we, we never really spoke that much. Kimi was Kimi. Um, even though he's changed a lot since he's got kids, uh, for the, for the much better. But uh, I remember in, in Spa, sitting in Spa, yeah, I think so. We're in the truck and he comes to me and he says, congratulations on the birth of your son. And I was like, I was shocked because, you know, we, we never spoke and out of the blue, he knew I just had a baby. So I was like, okay, thank you, Kimi. But I didn't know what to say. <laughs> but uh, since the birth of his children, though, he's become a bit of a comedian on Instagram. So I think he seems to have changed then. Yeah, he's changed a lot and he's not a great, great guy. I mean, you know, I always love racing him on track because you know that he's always going to respect and give you the room and you can have, you know, you, you can go in confidence fighting Kimi on track for sure. And yeah, since he's got kids, it's, it's quite fun. Let's go to some more positive stuff. Like if you now look back, the best, most beautiful moment in your F1 career, what was it? You know, it's difficult. I didn't win a race and I didn't win a championship. So it's easy when you win, you know, to, to pick, uh, not easy, but you can pick that one. For me, I, I had many podiums and then I had some, some less good cars, but some good races. You know, that question comes very often to me and I can't really pick one moment up of my career. I've had a lot of good moments. My last podium, you were there, you know, in 2015. And that was obviously a good moment. We had the bailiffs in the garage. The team was, the car was was taped to stay together. And uh, here we are on the podium and uh, obviously some good races with Haas as well. So um, yeah, plenty of good memories. But you can definitely say that you're going out of F1 now with a very fulfilled mindset of all the things you've achieved, right? Yeah, very much. You know, I obviously, I, I never win a race. I never, uh, I never, I was never world champion, but uh, at the end I've had the career that I, you know, even better than I could have hoped at the beginning, you know, I've been there 10 years I've gone around the questions and I was watching winter testing and I don't feel bad not being there. You know, I think I've, I've done my time. I was obviously, if, if you get a call from Mercedes or Red Bull or Ferrari, then, you know, it's a competitive car. So why you want to jump back in, but uh, to be back of the grid and not being able to fight for wins and so on, I think I've done my time and, you know, I'm happy to watch it. I'm still a fan about it, but I've, I'm okay with not being there anymore. I'm not too sure about your uh, mention of Ferrari there in that trilogy of competitive cars, but let's leave that, let's leave that aside. <laughs> well, it's, you have to put Ferrari as a competitive car, whatever, you know, even if they're not, just put it in there. I have that though, that I always, watching F1 always somehow still accompanies me with a little bit of negativity that I'm thinking like, oh shit, uh, I, I could be there. It's, it's strange because I'm totally fulfilled as well, but it still has always a tiny negative there when I'm watching, but I think it's always going to be, always going to be like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I am lucky to race in something else and I guess I'm finding a lot of pleasure in racing something else. So really for me, F1, the chapter is kind of closed. If it's okay, I would still like to, before we close it completely, just go of course into one of the most difficult moments for you. And I'd like to start with a, a comment of yours and your comment is 2017 or 2018. I never liked it and I still don't like it. I think it was a very sad day for F1 when it came out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, the halo. Yes, this is a comment of yours about the halo. What, uh, what is your view now on that? Well, Jean Todd came to see me in Bahrain on my hospital bed. And he said, you remember what you say about the halo? And I said, Jean, there's only the dumbass that don't change their mind. <laughs> <laughs> I have changed my mind. <laughs> okay, that's reassuring. I'm glad. I'm very glad to hear that. 
Um, so if it's, if it's okay with you, I, of course, we'd like to touch a little bit on, on your crash as well. I hope that's okay uh, for you. And the crash, you, I mean, you were 27 seconds in the blazing fire and then it was 67 G of, of impact. Do you remember? I hope that it's okay for you that just to, to revisit it a little bit. I can imagine it's not so easy, but um, I think the, the listeners would also appreciate from getting an insight into some of those experiences. Um, do you remember if you were scared at any point as it was happening or, or after when you were sitting in the, in the fire? No, actually not. I think the, the first thing is between the, the touch with Kvyat and the impact, there's only like six tenths of a second. So you don't really get the time to realize you're going to hit the guardrail at that speed. And then it, surprisingly, the impact for me wasn't that bad. You know, 67 G is a lot, but I didn't feel like it was, it was bad. So I, I ended my seal belt. I'm ready to jump out of the car and then I'm stuck. And then I, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to wait. And then they're going to come and help me. You know, I didn't know if I was upside down. It's, it's night races. There's no light in the cockpit. So you don't see anything. You don't know where you are. And then I realized there's fire. So, oh, okay, no, I can't wait. And then I try to jump out and jump out and jump out. And I, I realized I'm completely stuck. And, um, and I realized the situation is, is not good. And then at one point, I thought that was it. That was my day. You know, it was, that was game over. And uh, that's why I say I was, to me, I was, I don't know, five, 10 seconds from being dead. And, and eventually I thought about my three kids and I said, no, I can't, I can't leave them without that. And that's how I find the energy, the last energy to, to manage to find a solution to jump out of the car, even though, you know, I, I could, I could feel my hands were burning, you know, when normally when you, you touch something hot, you would, you touch it and remove it. But I would, I would keep my hands in straight into the fire because that's the only grip I had to jump out of the car. And uh, my foot was stuck and I was pulling so hard on my leg that even my ankle could have stayed there. I wouldn't care. You know, I just wanted to be out of the car and um, eventually made it. And, and that moment where I was sliding and I knew I was off, that was, you know, kind of the best moment of, you know, of my life, maybe just because I was going to leave. Um, and uh, then I was in shock. Obviously, then I was in shock from, from what happened and, and seeing the fire and so on and seeing what I went through. Um, but also, you know, it teach me a lot about me that, um, I knew I, I never give up in my life and I never gave up in my hopes and dreams and wish to win races and to compete. But, uh, this experience being in such a, a difficult situation and, and not giving up and, you know, putting all you have in your heart, fighting as hard as you can to, to escape that fire, show me how strong I can be in tough times. Oh, I get, uh, I get shivers, uh. Uh, listening to that because I also remember sitting in front of the TV um, watching and I, of course I can relate a tiny bit because of knowing how it feels to sit in that cockpit in that space but you didn't you didn't have any fear even when you start even the moment you realized your foot was stuck you weren't scared no no I was I was not scared you know at that time you can't you don't have the time to be scared and as I said at one point I almost accepted that that was it you know I would I would be dead um, it's quite, a, it's quite a strange feeling. And that's obviously something I had to work on with my psychologist because I say, how can you kind of accept, you know, and people say, oh, you see all your life and so on. No, I, I didn't see any of that. I see, I see peace and, and like the body that, that kinds of relax. And it, it is, it is a very strange feeling. Um, I don't wish anyone to try it because, you know, it's, it's not, not something you want to go, but it makes you 
hundred times stronger, thousand times stronger. And I, I read that you even had time to relate to Niki Lauda in those tenths of a second. Is that that's really true? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's it's when I undo the seatbelt, I start jump out. I don't, I, I cannot do it. And then I realize I'm on fire. And then I thought about Niki Lauda, and I said, no, no, I, you know, I don't know why. It's the first one of the first footage that came into my mind was was Niki being stuck in his car on fire and and leaving the same situation. I wish that's, I could, I wish I could crazy. speak with him about it. You know, because um, he was such a character. I mean, you've been working with with Nikki, and uh, you know, to me, he was he was the best legend of Formula One. No, he was a very special person. Yeah, absolutely. And he gave me so much as well in my career. You know, so I'm I'm of course very very grateful as well. And we, I just saw your helmet recently on on the internet. Actually, it was incredibly burned. And how are how are your hands doing now? Well, you know, one is the, the right is good. Um, yeah. um The left is a little bit less good. Wow. You know, I, I, as I say, I can almost live normally. I can't cope with cold. I cannot put sun for two years on it. So I need to put sun cream and gloves and so on. It's painful 23 hours a day. I need to do rehab exercise every 10 minutes just to not lose mobility. So it's not all pink. It's not, it's not nice, but I've got my two hands. I can drive car. I can cuddle my kids. I can uh, play with them. And that's what matters. And how has this now, has it changed you in any way in, in life, having such an extreme experience and knowing how vulnerable life actually is? Do you catch yourself now in, in life, maybe spending that half hour more with your kids when you would otherwise have done Instagram or is there any change like that? Yeah, there's, there's a before and an after 29, 11, 20, you know, for me. To, you can't go through an experience like this and, and be the same. So yes, there's a before and an after. I know I enjoy life. More small details, uh, as you say, being with my kids more, especially that this year with all the travel, sometimes I'm, I'm aware a little bit longer and, you know, try just try to, we, we take life for granted, you know. Exactly. Sometimes, yeah. But it can go very quickly. And so you really, you say there's really a distinctive change in some moments of your life now, which as a result of that. Yeah, I even got myself, uh, my wife worried at one point because I was, uh, after the crash, I was playing table tennis and uh, with my trainer in Bahrain when I was trying to come back for Abu Dhabi. And we come back to, to the room and she said, who, who won? I said, I don't know. We didn't play for points. She got worried because I never play for not winning. And uh, that happened. So now you just play for the enjoying the moment in life. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, that's powerful huh? that it's really had such a lasting impact on your life in, in that way. Yeah, for sure. It, it has changed everything. And just the way, also the way I see you know, my racing and, the, you know, I'm still doing it very professionally and training and doing things right. But also I don't want to forget the fun of it, which, which, you know, in professional sport, we tend to. You say in professional sport, you tend to forget the fun of it. How explain that a little bit more detail than in your F1 career, you say fun became smaller and smaller and why? Yeah, I think so. Just because, you know, you've got the pressure, you need to perform. And, you know, at the end, if you don't win, you don't have that much fun. That's what we do since we're little, you know, and uh, just driving car is great. But when you travel 21 Grand Prix around the world, get jet lag in every direction and you go to the race and, you know, your car is only capable of doing 16 or something like that. Even though driving F1 car is absolutely outstanding, 
you get fun for one session, you know, one run in free practice one, and then you come back to the garage, you see your three seconds of the pace, and then, you know, it's going to go, and the fun just kind of disappears. Yeah, no, I can I can relate to that. That, um, but of course, I had the element in the last couple of years of having a fantastic car. But even then, the fun becomes becomes smaller with time because there's just so much else happening, so much, so much expectation and pressure and battles and and politics and everything, which unfortunately just reduces that uh, that fun element with time. No, for sure, it's you know you had the best car, but yeah, you also had one of the best teammates to beat, and uh, <laughs> at the end. There's almost no room for fun. It's not that we forget it, it's that there's almost no room for it, you know, just because every time you do something, it has to be for the performance and to go for it. And therefore, yeah, the, the fun starts to go a little bit away. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I just I come back again to the work you've done with your psychologist now after the crash that you had uh, last November? Because I don't know if maybe there's a few things that we can pick out. Of course, we haven't. Most of us haven't had anywhere near as extreme experiences, but maybe it's still relatable for some big failures we have in life or something else. Can you pick out like one particularly very interesting thing, piece of work that you did with a psychologist to work through that and and to not have any negativity from the crash to continue in your in your life? Is there one particular point? Well, I think you know. Every experience is different and it's it's quite hard to relate something. What I would say is, you know, that life is life is beautiful and worth living. And, you know, most of the time there is a solution. And even though when I was in the fire, they could look like there were no solution to, to leave. Um, at the end, there were one. And I had to dig deep and to fight for it. But at the end, it worked. So... I'm not the type of guy that goes on social media and gives, you know, uh, life uh, lessons or stuff that we can see uh, sometimes. And I think we all we're all different in the way we we leave things and and you know the way we learn things about ourselves. But you know, I think one of the key in life generally is to never give up. Never give up on your dream, on your wishes, on what you're doing. And sometimes it just may not look good or, or may look hard and or not be pretty, but um, if you if you give up, you never know what the answer is going to be. The the positive really is that it changed my life for the best just because yeah. I realized that uh, close I was from not having any more seconds. So, you know, it's almost like at a second birth date, and every second is is bonus. So I guess that's, but that's that's even more than the psychologist myself. I, I I've realized that, and I need you know every morning I wake up and I realize and I remind me myself that I'm here and that is you know that is lucky to be here. So yeah, life is worth believing. That's really nice to hear. But then at the same time, now you signed for Dale Coin Racing in uh, IndyCar. So are you then a little bit of a nutcase or what? Because uh, you're coming from this and you're going into a racing that's even more dangerous because you're racing on ovals where we know, unfortunately, that the risk is higher. Um, I mean, <laughs> is that... <laughs> How Thanks, Nico. That? I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> how do you and and like you're you're comfortable now or after the was it how was the feeling like before you got back into the first time in the racing car in Dale Coin Racing were you a bit like shit I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this or you know I was I was never worried for testing I knew jumping back in a car because I did it in Bahrain I wanted to to sit in the in the house yeah Thursday yeah I think it was Thursday so five days after the crash and I felt I didn't feel any. Anything strange, anything unusual. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I, I wasn't worried sitting in a car. We, you know, in, in motorsport, we accept the risk. This is, 
it's since we do go-karts, you know, I, I broke my collarbone in go-karts and, and we have had crashes and, and things and we know it, it's dangerous and we always try to make with the GPDA and so on, we always try to make the sport safer from the bottom of the ladder. Obviously, there are things a little bit different. You mentioned overs. I'm not doing the, the speedways. So I'm not doing Texas, no Indy 500, which is one of the biggest races in the world. That I, obviously, I would like to have it on my Palmares, but uh, it's not so much for me. It's more for my, my family and my kids and my wife not to put them into the situation again because, you know, when you drive at 400 kph and there's a crash, it's a big one. Most of the time, we touch with the guys, they jump out okay. But for a moment, you can you see the crash and you don't know. And I don't want to put them through uh, that phase, you know. The risk, we accept it. I mean, Formula, you cannot drive a car at 330 kph next to each other, fighting the limits, driving through the streets of Monaco flat out without knowing that the risk is involved. And, you know, we accept it. We measure it. We're not crazy, as you say. We, uh, you know, it is our life, you know, living on the edge, but knowing which side is the good side. I really respect also your, how you're showing your vulnerability now in this moment, how you're saying, hey, I, I actually don't know how it's going to be when I'll be in the middle of the race start with 24 other cars going flat out in, in the racing car on a rolling race start, huh? which is more crazy than the F1 race starts. Um, so I really appreciate that. And at the same time, it's great to see the courage, huh? the courage that you're taking to just put you into that situation and just go for it. Very, very, uh, very strong. Yeah, I'm passionate about it. I love racing. Uh, you know, even on my hospital bed, the first mission was trying to, to be back in the car in Abu Dhabi and uh, never really I thought about quitting, you know. And, and a lot of people would have understood if I said, you know, I retired at the end of my career. It would have been almost normal. But we we are not normal, you know. We, we're built to be champions. We're built to be, to be racers, to be competitors. And as long as you have that wish that you want, you are not done with what you love doing, then, uh, you know, it's hard to stop. And as I say, Formula One, for me, the chapter is, it's turned and I'm happy with what I've done. I don't regret anything, but motorsport, I am, I don't feel like I'm done with it. And if I would stop now, I would feel always something a bit, you know, not so positive. What is for you like uh, the dream targets? One or two targets left in motorsports. It would be winning, uh, winning IndyCar championship, of course. And yeah, that else? would be nice. Uh, Le Mans 24 hours, endurance racing, you know, sharing the cars with teammates. That's something that I, I did last year, Le Mans 24 hours on, on eSports with my team and my teammates. And we crossed the finish line and we finished fourth. And it was actually super special to share that moment with the guys, even though we weren't in the same room, but we were talking and chatting on Discord. And it was, a, it was a special moment. And I thought at that day, I thought, you know what? I think... I've had enough of trying to be as fast as I can on my own. No, I want to make sure that I go fast with my team, you know, my teammates. My car goes fast and uh, endurance is definitely something that I want to do. Yeah, that's really nice. I've heard so much about that huh? from F1 drivers going to Le Mans and saying it's such a refreshing experience because in F1, it's so ego Ego focused and ego driven. It's just you in, on your own against the others, feeling wise, huh? even though you have a team. And that's really refreshing to share the responsibility with other drivers like that, as you were saying, sounds like a really nice environment. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's definitely something I want to try. And, you know, IndyCar has got, has got a very different mentality as well from Formula One. It's a single seater, but there's such a, I mean, everything is open. I went to the first test of the season and, and the car was being set up on the, on the parking. But our car next to uh, Real Racing Team, next to Penske, 
and there's no tents, no box, no hiding. And they're like, no, I mean, they're all the same cars. The best one does the best job on track and that's it. And uh, you share barbecue in the evening with the drivers. And then obviously in the morning you put your race helmet and then it's it's fighting and, and beating them all. But uh, the atmosphere is is so different that it's already something that, uh, you know, coming from 10 years in Formula One, it, it's a big change. That's so nice to hear. I think it sounds like you're going to have a really nice time. And and with the talent that you have, I mean, you have the best chances to win the championship also in the next couple of years. So at this point, thank you so much for taking the time for the chat. And I think everybody who's listening as well wishes you so much success in your next steps and really respect for all the courage that you're, uh, that you're bringing to this and to your next steps. Really impressive. So thank you very much. And say hi to the family, please. I will. Same to you. Thank you for having me. Say hi to the family. Look after them. And anyway, we keep talking and chatting here and there. <laughs> Thank you, Romain. So bye-bye.